Welcome to yet another exciting edition of Sovereign BTC, your guide to the practical side of everyday Bitcoin use. This episode is the seventh in our series, and the title is Bitcoin is What You Make of It. You can hear it at letstalkbitcoin.com in their podcast feed, or you can find it on sovereignbtc.com. In this episode of Sovereign BTC, we explore Bitcoin from a few different perspectives. First, we share with you an excerpt from a panel discussion hosted by my lovely wife, Catherine Bleich, also known as the BitMom, that took place at Sunday's 512 Bitcoin mini-conference. It's all about women in Bitcoin. The conversation is lively, and the women are jazzed up about Bitcoin. 512 Bitcoin, the host of the mini-conference, is a newly launched resource center for the Central Texas Bitcoin ecosystem. The firm operates a telephone information helpline for all things Bitcoin-related in Central Texas. They publish a blog and podcast covering news and views from the local Bitcoin scene, and they host regular educational and networking events. It's an exciting project, and I'm proud to be a part of it. We're hoping it makes it easier for Central Texas residents to get involved with the Bitcoin ecosystem. Headlining the mini-conference was Cody Wilson of Defense Distributed and Unsystem. They're the guys making the dark wallet. In this week's podcast, we're bringing you just a bit of the compelling speech he delivered to the crowd on the need to maintain and grow Bitcoin's radical potential. Also in attendance at the conference was Lynn Ulbricht. She's the mother of Ross Ulbricht, the alleged organizer of the Silk Road, an online black and gray marketplace that used Bitcoin exclusively for the trading of goods and services. I was honored to meet Lynn at the conference and hear about her courageous actions to support her imprisoned son. I met up with her a couple days later after the conference and recorded an intimate interview about her son Ross, the charges he's facing, and what liberty activists and Bitcoin enthusiasts alike can do to support him. To learn more now, visit freeross.org. Remember, folks, it's not just Ross on trial right now. This case will likely set precedent on how law enforcement officials handle online sales and anonymous transactions with cryptocurrencies. The long and short of it is that Ross Ulbricht, whether he's guilty of the charges he is accused of or not, has harmed no one. There is no victim, and in my book, no victim, no crime. To close down this week's podcast, I read an article written in the Wall Street Journal blog that covered the 512 Mini Conference and the role anarchism is playing in the Bitcoin movement. As Cody Wilson points out in the speech we'll be playing later, it's important for those who value Bitcoin for the role it's playing in disrupting the status quo to make sure that that message is included in the conversation. Judging by the coverage from the Wall Street Journal, I think we did just that. Strap yourself in, folks, and get ready for yet another jam-packed and exciting edition of the Sovereign BTC podcast, your guide to the practical side of everyday Bitcoin use. Before we go any further, here's this week's Bitcoin News of the Week. Bitcoin could be the future of user-to-user payments, but is not a currency. That word comes from an analysis released this week by Goldman Sachs. The analysts behind the study say that Bitcoin is more like a commodity than a currency and needs a fixed exchange rate in order to succeed. The study also calls the difficulties Bitcoin faces as a store of value, quote, a significant obstacle to its adoption. Bitcoin proponents state that Goldman Sachs is merely afraid that Bitcoin could in fact replace the banking system as we know it. 
Earlier this week, the Bitcoin exchange Mt. Gox filed for bankruptcy in Dallas, Texas. This latest petition is being brought under Chapter 15 of U.S. Bankruptcy Law, which allows foreign companies an opportunity to reorganize their funds. In late February, Mt. Gox filed for bankruptcy in Japan after admitting to losing Bitcoin valued at over $450 million. The U.S. bankruptcy filing is also an effort to delay a federal lawsuit filed in Illinois on behalf of U.S. residents who lost money in Mt. Gox's collapse. Also in Mt. Gox news, hackers have gained access to the personal blog and Reddit account of former Mt. Gox CEO Max Carples. Forbes reports both platforms were used to post a message claiming that Carples retains access to some of the bitcoins he claims had been stolen. In an attempt to support the claim, the hackers uploaded a series of files that included a spreadsheet of more than a million trades, the former CEO's home address, and a screenshot intended to confirm the hackers' access to the data. It was later reported on Reddit that the files that were uploaded actually included malware that stole users' bitcoin. We'll keep you up to date as this story unfolds. Bitmain, the mining hardware company most known for the release of the Antminer S1, announced this week the release of the Antminer S2, a 1 terahash machine with 1,000 watts of power consumption. The first batch of Antminer S2s will be shipped out on April 1st and the second batch by April 10th. The Antminer S2 will be available in the global marketplace for a price of $3,899. For more information, visit bitmaintech.com. I want to thank the Liberty Beat for their support in helping us with the Bitcoin news of the week. You can find more information at thelibertybeat.com. That's your daily source for Liberty news and activist updates. For full disclosure, we had a story about the release of the Antminer S2 from Bitmain. They are one of Sovereign BTC's new sponsors, so I just want to let you know we do appreciate their product objectively outside of their sponsorship. We wanted to go ahead and throw that announcement in there because I'm pretty excited about that new piece of machinery. One terahash with only 1,000 watts at a price of $3,899. That's pretty exciting. We're next going to move on to a panel discussion that took place at this last Sunday's event, the 512 Bitcoin Mini Conference and Launch Party. My wife, Catherine Bleich, hosted it. It featured a slew of women that are involved in the Bitcoin ecosystem here in Central Texas, and there was a lot of great information that was shared, a lot of great insights. There's a little bit of controversy surrounding this effort to get more women involved. There's also this uh, Crypto Women International group that's been put together. There was Women in Bitcoin uh, panel at the Texas Bitcoin Conference. At many of the Bitcoin conferences, there's panels about women in Bitcoin. And some people think it's sexist or it's out of line to encourage more women in Bitcoin. I personally think that's a little bit of hogwash. I think there's a void of women in Bitcoin. And regardless of what sex this group takes, I think it's important that we have more and more people in Bitcoin. If there's a void of one particular group in Bitcoin, it might help to explore why that is and encourage the growth of that group. But a lot of people actually feel this way. I came across this same fact here, the same idea in Coindesk's State of Bitcoin 2014 report. you got to check this out if you haven't read it, folks. It's about 91 pages. It's a PowerPoint slideshow, so you'll be able to breeze through it real quick. But it's got all sorts of great information and insights on the development of the Bitcoin ecosystem. And on page 73, they have a page that has the title, Bitcoin Faces Numerous Challenges. Some of them are regulatory uncertainty, switching costs, 
supporting infrastructure convenience and few women involved. They say very few women involved in Bitcoin to date, yet women have significant and often dominant influence on financial decisions in many households, which is very true. So it's a shame that there are so few women involved. I, I feel if we get more women involved, that'll be a catalyst to really grow the movement. Something that Jessica Armand, who's a good friend of mine and good friend of our family, she's featured in this panel that we're about to hear and she makes a very powerful statement about women in many ways lead the charge on a lot of things. If a woman is passionate about something, especially if it has to do with her sovereignty and her freedom and control over value, then it's going to go a long way. There's going to be change if the women get involved and the women really push this. That's some of the points that's brought up in this panel. And again, my lovely wife, Catherine Blash, The Bit Mom. You can check it out at thebitmom.com. Uh, she put this together. You can hear the entire panel, the full panel. We only have an excerpt here on the show, but you can hear the full thing at thebitmom.com on their SoundCloud podcast feed. So without further ado, here's the women's panel from the 512 Bitcoin mini conference that took place on March 9th. Hope you enjoy. I wanted to talk about are the barriers to entry for Bitcoin. And I was curious if you ladies experienced any obstacles yourself while getting involved in the Bitcoin cryptocurrency movement, what those obstacles were and how you overcame them. So the the idea of, of the blockchain was a little bit thick for me. Uh, my husband's a programmer, so he obviously got it right away. Um, it was a little bit more difficult for me to understand. So while he did his best to explain it to me, I knew that I could trust what he was saying, but it didn't quite like connect all the dots. And um, so I just kind of had to go on faith with that. But something that Jeffrey Tucker said yesterday at the, uh, at the conference just struck me as like brilliant. And he, he basically said that electricity is really, really difficult to understand, but we don't have to like fully comprehend it every time we walk into a room and flip the light on. Um, it's just been proved to work. We trust it. We trust the people that, that invented it. And, and that's really was the barrier for me. But when he said that, even though I was able to trust my husband and had somebody close to me that I could, I could know that he, he knew what was going on, um, even though I didn't fully, fully understand the whole process, I mean, that, that really is it. You don't have to know the ins and outs of the whole process to know that it works. So that was really inspiring for me. Um, I think that the technical aspect and the, uh, the way that things were explained to me with Bitcoin um, made it difficult for me to, to know or care or understand. The things that have attracted to me since then and, and something that I strive to do with art and you know just different engagements with people is to make it more of a examples and kind of I don't know just Bitcoin with a heart angle versus the technical angle. I think that um, especially like when guys that are into Bitcoin try and tell you they tell you like you're a guy that sits around coding, and that's I don't think I think that we're limiting ourselves if that's the only way that we're going to try and communicate with other people, and and that's what kind of you know stopped me, but. The things that attracted me were Bitcoin opportunities for charity, especially, um, and again, the anti-war uh, part of it. So I think that would have been um, something I would have liked to have heard about a little sooner, I guess. As just far as entry into the Bitcoin standard or mythos, I mean, for me, it's just like I take anything that 
that I find interest in, like when I was interested in Whole Foods and no one knew what that was or whatnot, or yoga, you were completely crazy to yoga, bicycling in Austin, you used to get a bottle thrown at your head. I mean, it's just like, you know, as a woman, I'm very assertive and very aggressive. And, you know, maybe it's the way I was raised on the ranch, but it's just like, I saw these guys talking about stuff and I was just like, what is that? You know, I wasn't embarrassed to act stupid, act dumb, be like, what's going on? I don't know what's going on. I want to go to the meeting. So I, when I found out that there was something interested, and this is to women, like if you find out you're interested in something, you just go ahead and play with the boys. Jump in the soccer game, jump in the football game, jump on that horse. So for me, it was just like, I just jumped in it and was like, I'm going to go to these meetings every week until I understand it. I sent a friend to the first uh, weekly meeting we had. I paid him. I said, go to that meeting, take notes, and I'll get there when I get there. I was so excited about it. Just, you know, so for me, and that's just not about this principle. It's about 9-11. It's about fluoride-free water. It's about elections. It's just like, if I don't know, I don't just go ahead, oh, I can just be, be in ignorance or stay stupid about it. I'll show up. I'll hang out with you guys, and I'll ask a bunch of questions. I kind of put my faith in the fact that that guy was, when he handed me that coin, that, that it was going to be worth something, or it was worth $7. Um, I didn't know anything about it at the time. And I didn't really do much research until oh, probably about a year ago when I finally opened my wallet and then done a lot of research online and stuff. But outside of that, I haven't... I mean, when I was at Porkfest last year, there was a lot of Bitcoin panels that I was listening to because I was working and there was nothing else to do but listen. So um, as I was working, the guy that I was working for, I got a bonus and he was like, do you want it in Bitcoin or do you want it through PayPal? And I was like, give it to me in Bitcoin. We'll see what happens. So um, at that time, it was $50. And then when it reached $1,000, I was like, holy cow. I just, I actually feel like I got paid what I was worth for finally, <laughs> oddly enough. Um, but yeah, and so I, I still have that money and I love it because I have the freedom of being able to choose where I want to spend the money and use it whenever I need to or if I feel like, you know, if, if I'm low on Federal Reserve notes and need to pay a bill or something, I can do it that way. So that's my answer. This is just a funny story. Um, so, like I said, my, my husband's cousin was mining Bitcoin, and he was just making a killing. When it, when it first started, he was just on the cutting edge. And his wife was completely against it. She didn't understand it. She was totally like, I, you're retarded. I don't know why you're wasting your time and our money. And, you know, and, and uh, she kept giving him crap about it. And she goes, well, I don't even understand why you're doing this. You cannot buy anything with Bitcoin. And he's like, okay, well, what do you want? What do you want? He go she goes, well, you can't buy me a, a new washer and dryer with Bitcoin. And he went out the very next day and bought her a washer and dryer with Bitcoin. And he showed up with it. And she's like, I'm a believer. You can do what you're doing because that's awesome. <laughs> and uh, I, I was like, that is really cool that you can, you know, just to do like the real aspect of it. You know, I've uh, the more women that I've talked to, they're like, oh, well, that's just this thing that's over here. I'm like, it can buy you groceries. It can buy you a washer and dryer. It's not something that that you can only have money, you know, save for a rainy day. A lot of us don't have savings. So to to invest in something like that is is a very difficult thing to comprehend. But it literally can pay for things in our life and it's it was pretty incredible to have that story told to me it was like all right this is really cool so I think that's another way to reach especially women who are who are kind of the caretakers of the family and the house and to know that it's not just putting money away that you're never going to see again but it can actually help raise your family so 
Uh, my biggest barrier to entry was the fact that I was a mother, and my attention is always split. I'm always distracted. Every time I installed the software to mine Litecoin, like, years ago when I very first heard of Litecoin, I was so excited and I wanted to, you know, I have an opportunity to start mining because it's, you know, not that difficult yet. And did I ever get pa past the point of downloading the software under my computer? No, I didn't because I was so distracted that when it came to actually installing it or figuring out how to run it, I was literally incapable of doing it. So for me, the barrier to entry was my inability to focus because my attention is so devoted to my children right now. So for me, being able to come up here to the bookstore and sit down with someone for 30 minutes and have them download Electrum to my computer for me and show me how it works, send me a little Bitcoin. Um, I had some waiting for me from a, uh, uh, I don't remember, it's, it's a defunct uh, website now where you could send Bitcoin through email. But so anyway, having someone take the time and sit down with me is what helped me overcome my obstacles. So I would just like to encourage anyone out there who does get it right now, look around. And if you see women who might be interested and you think, gosh, they have interests that are in line with this, maybe they need help getting involved. And gosh, just having someone reach out and say, yes, I can install a wallet for you on your laptop made all the difference for me. So really just, you know, the generosity of, of time and energy, I think is really needed to help get more women involved in Bitcoin. So the last question we wanted to cover was, do we need more women in the Bitcoin ecosystem? What, do you, what are your thoughts on that and why or why not? I know um, just having this panel created some controversy on Facebook. Some people were, that's sexist, that's yada, yada, yada. And I have my own opinions on that, which I'll share later. But I wanted to give these women the opportunity to share theirs. Who wants to start? Because I'm mouthy. Um, <laughs> so this is probably going to sound sexist, but I believe that the woman is more of a gateway to the next generation. Um, we have... We have just an opportunity by, by being with our children to teach them. And like with our two oldest, our, our son is 13, like I said. We have an 11-year-old daughter, and they know about Bitcoin, and they know about all of the things that we're interested in, and uh, freedom and education, and just knowing that we don't have to rely on the government, but we can be our own selves and be responsible for our own lives. And that is what we've taught them. So I think that it is important to get moms um, involved and women involved in Bitcoin um, and to educate them. We had, like I said, at our Parents for Liberty conference, Michael Strong was speaking, and he was calling on what he called the mama bears to get involved in liberty, to get involved in freedom and activism, because when the mama bears are behind it, that's when it really catches on. And I was like, yeah, I'll be a mama bear. I can be a mama bear. That's awesome, right? <laughs> Because you mess with my cubs, I'll kill you. <laughs> so I, I definitely think it's really important. I love speaking to women um, about what I'm passionate about, including Bitcoin, because I know that that's the future of this world, is, is get, get to the women, get to the moms, and you will change the world through the next generation. Um, okay, I thought that was really good. Not something I, I'm. I'm not a mom. I'm the only one that's not a mom. But I think that um, that there's a lot of things that women offer um, that men don't. You know, uh, and 
and I think that communication and connecting is uh, are among them. And I think that that's. I just think that there's a, there's a different way that you can approach people. So I don't know if there's, yeah. I mean that's that's what I would say. And also like music for me is really good. Uh, I don't. I feel like I just crapped out on the answer. Darn it. Okay, I'll I'll come back if I think it's something. Okay, I had it like all good, and then I listened. And I was, yeah, Mama Bear, that's right. <laughs> Just want to go back to barriers for entry. So hopefully on next year's Bitcoin conference in Austin, and I, I don't think the host broke even or anything on this event, but uh, I had a lot of friends or you know complain about the cost, and and I mean I was happy to pay three twenty five whatever you know what I'm saying, but it's like we need to make sure some of these barriers are removed next year, whether it's through scholarships, um, and then back to uh, what women offer at one of the. Uh, monthly lectures at UT, we are Skyping in with Pal Pylon, the Bitcoin wife, and I think she was saying women spend 80% of the money. So, you know, if you're in a partnership and your wife's taking care of the bills, she's spending, you know, 80% of your money or y'all's money on your clothes, on the everyday essentials, not like jewelry and makeup. You know, so 80% of this money is being spent by women. Women, I think in general, not me, are like more you know, it's going to help them make their budgets. It's going to, like, they're not interested, I believe, in being anonymous or having any secret things necessarily. If it makes their transactions easier, if it helps them keep a ledger on all their expenses, I mean, making it easy for women to purchase and itemize and budget. So that's, that's just something I learned from the Bitcoin wife. Thanks. Um, I pretty much just concur with everything that they said. Uh, communication especially. I think, like, um, I, I'm about to do business with um, a paleo food truck in Austin, and I was thinking in my head, I was like, hmm, I need to talk to her about doing stuff in Bitcoin. So I think, like, women to women, we can communicate with each other a lot easier sometimes than having a man come and be like, you need to accept Bitcoin. Um, so um, I guess I'll let everybody know how it goes when I talk to her about it. But I think I think just under having a general understanding about how it all works and being able to um, talk to others about that is, is going to be the great thing to bring more women into Bitcoin. So, Well, I personally think it's really important to have women involved because we want lots of people involved. And right now, if you look around the room, most of the people involved are men. There are very few children here and there are very few women here. And if we want humanity to learn about currencies that don't involve a centralized institution, whether it's Bitcoin, Litecoin, Dogecoin, silver, gold, whatever it may be, we need to have women involved as well. So I really believe that as a Bitcoin community, we need to make our events more friendly to women. That means there should be things for children to do so that I'm not tracing my children around, but I'm actually able to listen and I'm able to participate because as I said, my attention is always split. But if you have people who can help watch the kids at events, then you have women who can actually pay attention. So for example, right now, Mikey is here. He's helping watch my kids and we're tipping him out in Bitcoin. So thank you, Mikey. <laughs> yes, and... and uh, Donna, well, I was going to say, there she is in the back. We've got, we've got multi-generations helping with the kids, which is really important. 
It does. It literally takes a village, and I know that when there's a bunch of techno geeks who maybe don't have families, who have brought this amazing gift to humanity that is cryptocurrency, they may not be vibing on the whole family frequency, and you just don't know. I didn't know until I had kids how hard it is to pay attention at an event when you're chasing kids. So I really believe that um, if, if you are going to put on an event in the future, come talk to one of us, and we can help you maybe structure it in a way where women can actually participate and feel empowered to be a part of the conversation. So I know we're running close on time right now. Does anyone have any closing thoughts or anything else to add? Mary. I just want to thank everybody for traveling to Austin. Um, I met so many awesome people from London, Kentucky, Lamar back here from Kentucky and Leaf. Uh, all these guys from Berlin. It's just, it's so good to see people face to face and I think it's important that we do meet face to face. And thanks for Brave New Books for hosting this Harlan Dietrich. I thought of another reason. I don't know if we touched on this, but I mean, women control the purse string. So if we want Bitcoin to expand, like women are the ones who are spending the money. So it would be good to have more of us because then we'll all grow in wealth, right? All right, good, cool. That's it. Thanks, everybody. All right. Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming to the Women in Bitcoin panel. Please make sure throughout the day that you're supporting the vendors that are here vending today and also supporting Brave New Books. Coming up next, we're going to play an intimate, in-depth interview I had with Lynn Ulbricht. She's the mother of Ross Ulbricht, who is organizing his defense at freeross.org. But before we do that, I want to play this one-minute PSA that was put together by MK Lords and Roberts and Roberts Brokerage International. It is an excellent advertisement, a public service announcement, that if you're interested in getting it up on local radio in your area or featured on your podcast, you can reach out to me via SovereignBTC.com, the contact page. I'd love to email you a copy of it. We have it here in Austin playing on 90.1 FM. It's playing on a mainstream radio station down in Pensacola, Florida, I believe. It's up on LRN.FM. It's up on some online radio stations. So it's a really good one-minute piece, short and sweet. And the title of today's program is Bitcoin is What You Make of It. So if you want to use Bitcoin to trade illicit substances or if you want to use Bitcoin to skirt the man, you can do that. You can do whatever you want with Bitcoin. But if you want to use Bitcoin for charitable purposes, there's this whole slew of nonprofit organizations like Free Aid, Bitcoin Not Bombs, Sean's Outpost that are all using Bitcoin uh, for philanthropy. And I think that's really exciting. And that's a point that this advertisement highlights. So Bitcoin is what you make of it. Some people choose to use it in order to express their personal sovereignty and privacy. Some people choose to use it in order to engage in charitable activities. And some people like to do both, like myself. So without further ado, we're going to play this one-minute spot, and then we'll be right back with you. I didn't want to give any of my money to a nation based on war. Bitcoin is a new form of digital currency and worldwide payment system that is changing the way we think of money in exciting ways. The largest growing sector of the Bitcoin economy is charity. Did you know Bitcoin helped homeless outreach group Sean's Outpost deliver 60,000 meals to the homeless in Pensacola in the past year? Or that it helped Free Aid deliver medical supplies to the Philippines after a devastating typhoon? The organization Bitcoin Not Bombs clothed and fed hundreds in San Francisco with their hoodie The Homeless Project. 
Bitcoin is a force for good and empowers charities without burdening taxpayers. It is free to set up a wallet, easier than opening a bank account, and it costs little or nothing to transfer value worldwide. To learn more about this innovative technology, visit weusecoins.com. Bitcoin whenever you pay. Use Bitcoin whenever you pay. That's a great piece. Again, if you want to get that advertisement so you can play it on radio stations in your area, just contact us at Sovereign BTC on the contact form there. I think that's a really uh, powerful piece put together very professionally. And shout out to MK Lords and Bitcoin Not Bombs. Next, we're going to play an interview that I did with Lynn Ulbricht. She was present at the 512 Bitcoin Mini Conference. I got the opportunity to meet her. And I called her and uh, organized an in-depth interview to take place a few days later. She's got one heck of a story. This is a brave and courageous woman that's really standing up and doing what it takes to help protect and defend her son, who I believe is unjustly locked up behind bars right now. Whether he's actually Dread Pirate Roberts or not, uh, I do not believe his place is in prison, and I think it's wrong for what is happening to him. He was in solitary confinement, as the interview will reveal. But I, I, my heart goes out to Lynn Ulbricht and the entire Ulbricht family, and we're going to do what we can here on the Sovereign BTC podcast to help get the word out about what's taking place. Again, you can go to freeross.org to get more information. You can also donate there at freeross.org. Of course, you can donate Bitcoin. You can also help get the word out by sharing the message through social media, the, uh, the mother, Lynn, is encouraging people to print out the sheets that have the QR code that say Free Ross and take pictures of them and spread them through social media, try to get some viral marketing going on. But it's a really heartfelt story, and my heart goes out to Lynn and what she's experiencing. And I just want uh, the listeners and the Ulbrich family to know that I stand in strong solidarity with Ross Ulbrich. Here's the interview I did with Lynn Ulbrich, mother of Ross Ulbrich. Lynn, thank you so much for joining us, and I'm so sorry that your son is in this situation, and uh, I just want to show my appreciation for everything you're doing to organize support. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, maybe you could just start by describing your son. What was he like growing up? Um, what's his character like? Just mm-hmm. give us paint sure. a picture, perhaps, of what, um, what he's like. Ross is, um, well, I think he's an exceptional person. He is, um, first of all, he's a very sweet, compassionate easygoing guy. He um, loves people. He um, loves animals and children. And he's just um, someone who loves life. And um, is there's testimony after testimony on our website of friends who have submitted anecdotes and um, it, all pointing to this the same thing of Ross's sterling character. He's someone who has a lot of integrity, who takes his word very seriously so he's a man of his word so I always knew I could trust him he never lied to me and I'm his mother (laughs) Um, (laughs) he um, and I know this because friends said yeah Ross just won't lie to you he won't lie to anyone you can you know that when he says it it's true Um, he's trustworthy he's helpful and um, you know often many many people wrote in about how he was the one you'd call if you needed help if you needed to move something, mm. if you, and um, I really was very moved by a lot of the testimonials that came in because I didn't know these stories. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also someone who treats everyone with respect as an individual. He doesn't like, and this is showing up in prison where he is getting along with everyone there. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I even had one of the inmates at a visiting thing say to me, um, Ross is a really good person and I'm watching out for him. Oh, that's good. Yeah. he's he's So even mm-hmm. though he's much more educated than a lot of the people in there, most of them, and all of that, he's not someone who – he's someone who's just – takes each person as an individual and sees the best in them. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never heard him say a bad word about anyone. And if, I, if I'm if i saying a bad word about someone to him, he stops me and says, <laughs> go talk to them. Oh, wow. He said, I go, you need to handle that with them. Mm-hmm. So he's corrected me. He's been a, you know, he's taught me a lot. Um, so he takes his integrity very seriously. Um, and I really respect him for that. Um, as far as how he's doing in prison with all of this, um, because he has this kind of, he's got a big picture outlook. He's that kind of person. And um, so he he's trying to take this day by day and um, make the most out of this experience and contribute the most he can to the environment he's in now. Mm-hmm. So um, he's trying to be a source of good in there as well. Wow. So I have a lot of... Um, admiration for my son and um i know i'm his mother so you know of course you feel that way but honestly i feel like um i I would anyway and there's many people who do that's good um yeah sounds like he has a really strong character he does he and he's resilient and i'm and uh he's um i think you know he's handling it as well as anyone could under the circumstances Mm mm-hmm and how, it's tough sometimes. <laughs> how long has he been in prison now? Since he was arrested on October 1st, and he was in solitary, wow. basically, for a month and a half uh, in different facilities. And that was pretty hard. That's terrible. Um, yeah. And um, now he isn't, thank God. <laughs> and now, originally, what was he being charged with? Now, I believe it's money laundering, narcotics trafficking, kingpin... <laughs> I'm that's like, a crime, hello? The crime of kingpin? <laughs> yeah, or, you know, well, I guess that's the kingpin charge, and I guess it's, I don't know what the formal description is. And um, what was the other one? <laughs> I can't remember. Okay. There's a fourth one. None of them, basically none of them are violent. Mm-hmm. And although previously they, um, the prosecution at his bail hearing and I guess in other places alleged that he had organized murder for hire and um, went into a whole thing about it. But they're not, uh, they did not formally indict him for that, um, which I knew I was, you know, I'm positive that he would never do something like that. Mm-hmm. And honestly, if I thought he'd had, I don't know that I would be as passionate about what I'm doing mm-hmm. in his, on his behalf right now. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway... It's not there. It's he did not have to stand up and plead not guilty to that charge. It's mm-hmm. not a formal indictment. Yeah, Cody Wilson had given several speeches and speculated that perhaps the the state was including that to kind of have support distanced because they didn't want to associate with something like that, which I think is, you know that, it makes sense. Um, so it's a shame that they you know br- trumpeted that out in the media only to just let that go and not even bring up formal charges. Yeah, and just to say, the media uh, was all too happy to um, blast that around. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I feel like they tend to, many of them, most of them, it seems to me, um, uh, go for the most sensationalistic uh, thing because who wants to read about a good person? That's Mm -hmm. not interesting. And um, so 
And they're still doing it. Yeah. And I mean, even though it's not, he hasn't been indicted for it, they're still doing it. And, uh-huh. um, and yeah, and often, very often, I don't see alleged anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I, you know. There was a Wall Street Journal piece that covered our 512 Bitcoin mini conference. That was a couple days ago here. Mm-hmm. And every single time they mentioned it, they said alleged. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Well, they're professional. That. Yeah, they yeah. actually have some integrity. <laughs> and you would hope that all these journalists that came out with, you know, stating these murder for hire charges would then issue retractions or do a follow up story saying it turns out that those aren't even formal charges. But Forbes as you said, did mention it. Oh, that's good. That's good to hear. Andy Greenberg, he did. Can you tell me how it felt for you personally? When you first learned that your son uh, was in trouble with this and that was being charged oh. with these terrible charges, well, it, you know, it was just—it was such a shock and um, such a um, uh, it's such a disconnect. It was what happened was we got a call from a Reuters reporter. Mm-hmm. That's how we found out. Oh man! And um, she was very kind. She was very nice. Um, but and, and just to give you an example of how you can be mis- misquoted, oh. I said um, to her. Oh my, because she told me the, some of the charges, and I was just shocked. And, and she said, I said, uh, Ross would never hurt anyone. And then that morphed later at the UK Daily Mail, is one place I read it, he never meant to hurt anyone. <laughs> it's a big difference. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't her fault. She quoted me correctly. But oh, um, so it's just been a real lesson mm-hmm. in how things get twisted. And it just kind of people talking, things get yeah. morphed into other things. And, I really have gotten to where I don't believe much that I read at all sure. in the media. <laughs> but um, anyway, it was such a shock. And then all of a sudden, after that call, we were bombarded with phone calls, people coming to our home, cameras. Wow. The neighbors are like, what's going on? This sort of thing. It was just like, what happened? Mm-hmm. This is such a shock. So, And, and our lives have not been the same since. Man, it's pretty heavy. It, it is, yeah. And that's why I've just gotten to where I just have to take it one day at a time mm-hmm. and and just keep going and not look too far in the future because it's pretty daunting. Do you speak with Ross regularly? Yeah, I just talked to him this morning. Um he does call and um and I and uh, I see him. I didn't this this last 2 weeks because I've been here, but generally every week. And how's he doing? Well, he's as I was saying he he's doing as well as can be expected. Mm-hmm. Um you know, he told me he said the worst part for him is what he's putting me through and his dad and mm-hmm. um and of course for me the worst part is what he's going through so we kind of decided okay we're both going to be okay so you know we're going to handle this so mm-hmm. let's not you know upset each other and try to uh i don't know just uh he's being as po- he's being positive he's mm-hmm. he's really quite a positive person and generally by nature mm-hmm. and um so that's helping him a lot is there anything that he needs from people that are supporters that they could do to help him out? Well, what we really need is um, money for his defense. Mm-hmm. Um, he he really needs a good defense. Um, and we do have an excellent legal team, but um, they're working hard, and we're not able to pay them like we wish we could. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're way behind. And um, it's a problem because with the murder-for-hire thing— um, you know, that puts people off, understandably. Um, and it seems like still more people think about that than they realize he wasn't indicted for it. Mm. Um, the other thing is people think we're rich because of all the things about the wealth and the Bitcoin. And mm-hmm. just to say that Ro- Ross has nothing. He um, is completely dependent on us to put money in his commissary. Mm. 
He is nothing. And we do, are not rich people at all. <laughs> so um, uh, we definitely, he needs help. Even little contributions can yeah. add up with enough people. Sure. And um, so that is really to get the word out. And if people could help. And the thing is, it's not just about him. Because I know people don't know Ross. Um, the case is an important case. I mean, our lawyer says it's going to set precedent. Mm-hmm. It's an historic case. It's it, it's in new territory. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that there's been too many cases that go into the, the questions of internet commerce, uh-huh. Bitcoin, yeah. which is specifically mentioned in the indictment, um, internet privacy, freedom, all of that stuff. Our lawyer said that it's traditional for the government to use high-profile, <coughs> sensational cases to make what he called bad law. Uh-huh. Yeah, people, the judges legislate from the bench, and I, th- I think it's important for everyone to realize, like, it's not just Ross that's in in prison right now, but everyone and everyone's privacy and everyone's freedom is at stake as well, you know? So we need to be there in solidarity with him and not just forget about this man and this family that's having so much turmoil brought upon them for not harming anyone whatsoever, which is a big kicker for me. So you've taken it upon yourself to organize this campaign that people can find at freeross.org mm-hmm. to rally support and to help raise money for his defense and mm-hmm. overall support. Can you tell us what that campaign is all about and what it's been like for you personally? I know that you're, sure. you're not an activist, but here you are. You're <laughs> springing into action and really doing a good job to get the word out. Oh, thanks. Um, I uh, hope to do a better job. Um, yeah, it started – actually, the website started out just m- by my reading all of this stuff uh, in the media. I'm going, this is not my son. Mm-hmm. I have to do something to talk about who he really is. Mm-hmm. And so at first it was just a personal statement. You know, this is who Ross is and this is who his friends say they are. he is. And and then it um, kind of, you know, evolved into fundraising because mm-hmm. we need <laughs> the money. And we need it for forensic people to analyze the massive data in this in the discovery process i think it's something like 10 terabytes wow <laughs> i mean i don't even have a concept of how much that is but i know it's a, a lot ton. <laughs> and uh um we need forensic people and um you know of course attorneys so anyway um yeah so we've we've been working on the website but it's really just uh me and um our ross's sister and my sister and um my husband ross's dad and um our little core group. And then we have other people who've come at different phases to help us and been great and really mm-hmm. generous and with their help with the website and with mm-hmm. different things. But um, it's, we're not professionals. We're not professional fundraisers. We don't, you know, so we're just kind of winging it mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, just doing what we can. And t- we're certainly very much welcome any ideas from people, mm-hmm. any contacts. And of course, donations, but also just ideas, and just to know the the support is out there. Like this trip has been so great because so many people have have been so supportive and generous with us, and um, awesome. it makes a big difference, For you sure. know, because it gets to be where you feel so alone, mm-hmm. and he does because he feels so cut off and he doesn't know what's going on, and so it's yeah. One thing that we've done, uh, unfortunately, my wife and I have very many close friends that are in jail for victimless mm. crimes. And uh, one thing that we've done, we organized it here at Brave New Books, which is where we're recording this interview, is we've done uh, mail-to-jail parties where we That's invite great. dozens of people and we all put the address up and we share stories about them and we encourage people to yes. write letters. So 
we're committing to organize one of those for Ross. So great. I, I think oh, that'll appreciate be great. that. It'll be access with everyone else and people can show their support and love for him. Is there information on where people could mail him letters on the website, freeross.org? No, but you know what? I'll put, well, I will put that up, his snail mail address. Excellent. And, uh, yeah, I'll do that. And, um, yeah. Great. I'll do that right away. Um, I'll commit also before you leave today to make a donation. Well, oh, well, thanks, John. I, I'm not rich either, but you know I, I really support uh, oh, thank you. That's Ross. Great. And, and I, I, again, I think it's just a travesty when the government locks up peaceful people who haven't harmed anyone. I think it's wrong, mm-hmm. and I hope someday at least perhaps my children, who are two and ten months, mm-hmm. live in a world where that's not the norm. Well, I hope it's sooner than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sure. And you know, the thing is, Ross has a lot to give. He's, mm-hmm. he's a very intelligent and very compassionate person who um, has a lot to give, and I, I just hope and pray that he's allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm hopeful. At the meeting uh, yesterday, you had a message to share with the audience uh, from Ross. You said that you spoke with him. Oh, yeah, Can yeah. you share that message before yeah, we let well, you go? Yeah, well, yeah, he just, he just said how much he really appreciated the support and that he, you know, is dedicated to, you know, fighting this and um, just needs everybody's help. Okay. Yeah. In closing, just and, list yeah. off one more time what people mm-hmm. could do to help out on the website they can go to. Okay, so please visit freeross.org. There's a contact um option where you can get contact me directly mm-hmm. um and um we're going to expand to do other things on there we have some other ideas like sharing of information and that kind of thing um and you know just the support any ideas any um willingness to put our website or our poster like we have a poster with a qr code mm-hmm. oh that's the other thing we're doing real quick is that um, if people would download the poster and hold it up and post it on their Facebook and Twitter, people can scan it from cool. there and, and donate. Just a little bit even. That's a good idea. Yeah. And so we have those to download. Um, so we're going to do that that, and um, just any other ideas um, that would help. Because we're new. We're, we're at this. And we need all the help we can get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. And there's a lot of smart people out there. And um, we'd love to uh, hear from you. Great. Well, I just want to let you know that you have... Uh, my support and respect, and there's scores and scores Thank of other you. people that are standing in solidarity with your family right now. Uh, so appreciate it. Thank you. really do. That was a powerful interview, and again, I really appreciate everything that Lynn is doing, and my heart and prayers go out to Ross Ulbricht, who is currently locked in a cage for having harmed no one. There's just scores and scores of people in this country that are locked up for doing absolutely nothing wrong. If he, in, in fact, is the organizer, one of the organizers of Silk Road Marketplace, Maybe he deserves a Nobel Peace Prize for creating an institution that allowed people to peacefully and safely trade with these recreational drugs that, of course, they're, you know people can choose to do what they want to do with their own persons. We have no right to regulate what people put in their body. And if there is going to be drug use, it should be done in a secure fashion with rating systems like eBay. So it's just a total shame. But I just want to remind people if they want to get more information on what's going on, with Ross Ulbricht, you can go to freeross.org. That's freeross.org. I want to take a second to thank another one of our sponsors at Central Texas Gunworks. Check them out at centraltexasgunworks.com. They are the first gun store in the country. I recently reported on a couple podcasts ago that they were the first gun store in the state. Turns out they're the first gun store in the country to accept Bitcoin. And my man, Michael Cargill, who's the owner of that shop, Not only is he accepting Bitcoin in exchange for the firearms that they sell, but he's also one heck of a proponent 
a evangelist for Bitcoin, and his store in Austin, Texas, right off of Highway 290 in South Congress, they actually are hosting a Bitcoin ATM, one of the first ones in the country. There's about three of them in the city of Austin right now, so really excited to be a part of the Central Texas Bitcoin ecosystem, and Michael Cargill is doing so much to get the word out about the value of Bitcoin. Again, you can purchase firearms on his online store using Bitcoin. That's centraltexasgunworks.com. He wasn't offering the firearms at first online, but so many people started calling him after they saw him on the news. And in Forbes magazine, Forbes just did a wonderful video piece recently about what he's doing there at Central Texas Gunworks. So if you want to purchase firearms, if you want to purchase them in Bitcoin, visit centraltexasgunworks.com. We're going to move on to our Bitcoin quote of the week. This one comes from Wences Casares. He's the CEO of Zappo, which is a Bitcoin storage firm. Now, this quote is going to segue quite nicely into the piece we're going to play from Cody Wilson about Bitcoin and anarchism. Now, Wences Casares, as we read, grew up in Argentina, uh, which has had a fair share of economic problems. Let's just go and hit you with this week's quote of the week, and then I'll give you my little bit of analysis as it relates to Bitcoin and the current conversation playing out in the Bitcoin ecosystem. He says, I grew up in Argentina. My parents were sheep ranchers, and I saw them lose everything at least three times, once because of inflation, once because of deflation, and once because their savings were confiscated. I recognize that those are extremes, but when you grow up in that environment, you become much more aware of problems with currency. So when I saw Bitcoin, it was like a dream. I think this quote says a lot, and it does a lot to underscore the importance of avoiding regulation when it comes to Bitcoin. Here's my thing for those Bitcoin enthusiasts who are actively seeking out Bitcoin regulation. Why? I ask you, why would you desire to hop in bed with the very institution that created the need for Bitcoin in the first place? If you recall, Satoshi Nakamoto created the currency in response to the economic turmoil that was taking place with the housing crisis, just all the shenanigans and bailouts and just picking winners and losers and the discount window being open with the Federal Reserve Bank, there was a need created by all this financial chicanery and central planning. And there's a vacuum for this currency that isn't controlled by central institutions, and that is Bitcoin. So why would you want to hop in bed with a central institution when you know that it's not going to be just regulate. There is no such thing as just regulation when it's people that are regulating the currency. This is something that Eric Voorhees alluded to in a quote of the week we hit you with a few podcasts ago. He said, you know, you're worried about the need for regulation because of bad actors like folks behind Mt. Gox making bad business practices or not being secure in their company. But you know what? The regulators are just the same. And in fact, in many cases, these bureaucrats and politicians are even more corrupt than your average Joe or your average entrepreneur. Why? Why? Why would you actively seek these individuals and these relationships with Bitcoin? Well, something that Cody Wilson points out in the speech, we're just going to play you an excerpt from it. But he points out that you can't separate yourself from this institution. If you try to come in and make change for the point of legitimizing Bitcoin and hoping that it'll one day replace the banking system, you just can't do it because once you hop in bed with the state, you effectively become the state. For real. I mean, there's a lot of people 
that think they can bring legitimacy to Bitcoin and in turn have it be increase in price and perhaps be more stable. They can bring legitimacy to Bitcoin by having it be regulated. But in fact, what could potentially happen is Bitcoin and its radical potential to completely replace the status quo, monopoly, coercive, fiat banking system, it could be gone. It could disappear. Because when you regulate Bitcoin, when you hop in bed with Bitcoin, Bitcoin becomes just another part of this banking system rather than something that could disrupt it and replace it altogether. And Bitcoin has the potential to do that, but not when you actively seek out the regulation. And this part isn't included in the excerpt that we're going to play for you, but he tells the story of Charlie Shrem, which I think is rather indicative of the situation that we're in. Charlie may or may not have participated or turned a, a blind eye to some money laundering that took place in association with the Silk Road and BitInstant. Along the way, he decides, you know what, I want to go legit, and I want to be the poster boy for Bitcoin and regulation of Bitcoin. I want to help legitimize Bitcoin to only turn around and have it be kind of a Trojan horse to replace the banking system. And apparently, due to some interviews that he gave, he actually fessed up to having let the regulators know of some of his actions that may have been a little taboo when it comes to the legal side of the financial system here in this country. And he thought that it perhaps it would be okay. This is just my analysis of, of what, I don't know exactly what he thought, but he reveals a lot of the interviews that he's done. Uh, he thought that it would be okay since he's, you know, he fessed up to this stuff, but now he's going legit and it's, everything's going to be kosher. But instead what happened just days before these New York financial regulatory meetings took place, he got arrested. And he may be arrested and charged with information that he voluntarily gave up to the state. So I think it just shows a very important lesson that you can't buddy up with these guys. They're like the mafia, man. You'll wake up with, with the cement shoes or with the freaking horse head next to you in your bed. You'll wake up and you'll be in a cage, locked in a cage or in house arrest can't buddy up to the state. They do not have your best intentions at hand. They're not in the game of protecting people's life, liberty, or property, or ensuring there's a level playing field for everyone. No, that has never been the case, nor will it ever be the case. Even in the early days of the U.S. Constitutional Republic, if you could even call it that, so-called founding fathers weren't there to protect the rights of all the people. In fact, over 90% of the people that inhabited the geographic area known as America at the time, over 90% of them they had no say in the U.S. Constitution whatsoever. No, it's never been about protecting the life, liberty, and property of everyone or ensuring there's a level playing field. It's always been about protecting the status quo and protecting the power and the monopoly position and the privilege of those who hold that power. And that's exactly what it's about today with banking and regulation and the regulation of Bitcoin and banning Bitcoin. These banks and these politicians that are owned by the banks... They see the potential that Bitcoin has to disrupt their position of power and the status quo and how they're seen as legitimate in the eyes of the public. Bitcoin has the potential, unlike anything in modern day, to expose them for the robber barons and thieves that they are. And I ask again, why would you want to get in bed with these people? We don't need their regulation. The Bitcoin ecosystem can regulate itself. It goes stronger and more agile with every Mt. Gox instance that takes place. We don't need the state. That's the message that I've been pushing out. Some people don't like that message, and that's okay, but I do think we should have the conversation. We shouldn't avoid the conversation because it's a conversation that needs to be had. 
And in this excerpt we're going to play from Cody Wilson's speech, he points out the importance of this conversation. He points out, and this is something that he also talked about in the part before what we're going to play for you, but he points out how the Bitcoin Foundation, in large part, has played the role of speaking on behalf of Bitcoin. And I just want it to be said that the Bitcoin Foundation doesn't speak on behalf of me. No one speaks on behalf of me, for that matter, although a lot of stuff Cody Wilson says I'll have to agree with. But the Bitcoin Foundation is playing a large role in dominating the conversation for the public. And they're the ones out there getting all the interviews on Bloomberg and Fox Business. They're the ones out there that are making it seem, making it appear as if a majority of Bitcoin supporters support regulation. But I don't think that's the case. I think there's people that are reluctantly going along. And I think there's a small group of wealthy Bitcoin entrepreneurs, CEOs, startup controllers that want it to be regulated. Because in my opinion, this is my analysis, it may not be the case. Again, I can't jump into everyone's head, but I think that they believe if it's regulated, it'll be more legitimate. There'll be more big money and more legacy money that's willing to hop in bed because it'll be less of a risk because the regulators have spoken. And I don't appreciate that. And I'm going to do what I can to insert my opinion and my philosophy into the conversation because I genuinely believe that Bitcoin is rooted in the philosophy of anarchism and the radical philosophy of anarchism, the idea that we ought not rely on these centralized, coercive institutions, that we don't need them. There's no place for them anymore. Things are changing, man. Technology is creating an environment where we no longer need government to solve our common problems. I don't think we ever did, but now we can see through the illusion. We can see that the emperor wears no clothes. The game has changed, and I urge you to embrace it. Don't fight it. Become a part of it. To heck with the status quo. It's based on coercion. It's based on picking winners and losers. It's based on the centralization of power, and Bitcoin is the exact opposite of that and that's why i think anarchism and bitcoin go hand in hand because the philosophy of anarchism is one that encourages personal responsibility encourages people to voluntarily cooperate on their own terms for their own benefit we don't need some central arbiter to tell us what's best for us we don't need a regulator to look after us and hold our hands we need people to be smart about what they do and we need each other to look out for one another that's all we need that's part of the message that Cody Wilson conveys. He talks about the importance of inserting these ideas into the conversation. And after we hear from Cody Wilson, this little excerpt, I'm going to read you a piece that the Wall Street Journal blog did, a write-up on our 512 Bitcoin mini-conference. And I think that this piece did just that. It inserted a little bit of the philosophy of anarchism into the Bitcoin conversation. It's a much-needed shift that should be taking place, and we're doing our role here on the Sovereign BTC to make sure that shift is taking place, and Cody Wilson's doing one heck of a job to do just the same. So folks, I now present an excerpt of the speech that Cody Wilson did at the 512 Bitcoin Mini Conference on March 9th. I hope you enjoy, and again, I hope you embrace Bitcoin for all that it is, the radical potential to disrupt the centralized coercive institution of banking, money, and finance and return power to the people. There's not a developmental direction uh, that encourages this direction uh, that we have, which is, one of, which is one of like embracing the actual extremist potentialities of Bitcoin. Well, if it means anything to us, it means decentralism. Like, what's the holy trinity of Bitcoin? Uh, it's rivalrousness, it's deflationary tendency, it's decentralism, and then something like its pseudonymity or its capacity for anonymity. These are all the things we're excited about. These are all the things, of course, the legacy powers are working to somewhat undermine uh, cross-check or provide, you know, third-party escrow services for, uh, just to get everybody kind of feeling better about themselves. So uh, when, I, when I use this example of, um, 
Kafka's The Trial, I, I do it because I think this is how we mythologize law to ourselves. This is the, the, the problem with people like uh, Charlie Shrem, who believe that they can participate in these processes. You, you just kind of have to take it. Let's take it to a different, a different place. What are we doing with Bitcoin with this Dark Wallet project, right? The, the, the contractors that Booz Allen Hamilton play it uh, when, they're, when they're telling law enforcement about Bitcoin. The people in, who know in the security industry are saying this is the kind of leading front of the new currency wars. Well, this is the game that we need to be playing. We need to be fighting the new currency wars. Um, that Bitcoin ATM upstairs, this is a technology of the self. This is a way to literally, both in its form factor and the way that it plugs back into the grid, is meant to replicate or be a prosthetic of, of an ATM. It's meant to, did you see its, bio, its biometrics on it? I'm not telling you not to use it. I'm just saying <laughs> its biometrics develop or, or take from you data about yourself and bind you to your transaction in a way that like uh, then binds you to an external power. This is the way we're using Bitcoin right now is a way of using Bitcoin to tie us to eventually our own cross or, or put us in a put us in a cell. OK, that's I mean, that's just kind of what's available to us at the moment. That's not anyone's particular fault. That's just how it's going. Um, so what I wanted to do here was informed by what I did with Liberator. Lib the Liberator pistol was a very like, you know, a kind of pressure cooker, six months of, of real thought and political philosophy. I'm like, you know, do I really intend to do this? What do I think about this? And what I found was most effective was not just doing something, but fighting and taking the exchange up, not in the actual, but to, to the symbolic level. We're not just fighting uh, in the real, we're fighting in the symbolic. Liberator was a, a kind of paraphysical science fiction uh, <laughs> attack on Western on the Western conscience. Well, how was it that? Well, in Badiou's theory of the event, he says, uh, you know, f the first events are, are failures, this, and then events come again as farce. But when, like in the example of the French Revolution, these people model themselves off of failed Roman revolutionaries. What, what had we done with Liberator? Liberator was an OSS psychological operation proposed during the World War II, uh, to be launched over occupied Europe to inspire psychological terror into the occupying forces there that almost anyone everywhere could have a gun and that this would also embolden the conscience of the resistance fighters. But more than that, it was to, to seriously undermine as a kind of psychological factor uh, the morale of the occupying forces. Well, that never came off because the West didn't have the guts to carry through with it. Well, I thought in the digital we could do, we could do Liberator for real, that we could really do it. And even though it was a kind of template gun, it wasn't a kind of actual useful, immediately useful gun, we could drop the liberator on the west and we could return that nightmare to it it was a nightmare of this of this western systemic planning returning to haunt uh, itself you know it was this kind of symbolic involution and uh, and therefore terrifying and had something that needed to be responded to but couldn't successfully be and i i say that only to say with dark wallet there's a conversation uh, like in like in what goldstein was talking about back in the 90s when uh, what we call the crypto wars behind the scenes there were a group of extremists and activist cryptographers who were desperately trying to, to develop good software that, without NSA corruption and then also publish that into the public domain to get it into the hands of the people at their own peril because at the, at the time it was deemed militarily and in, uh, an intelligence uh, significant. I mean, it would it, essentially an act of treason to publish this into the public domain. Just in the 1990s, President Clinton and the OECD consensus capitalists proposed all kinds of, you know, compromises and solutions like a key escrow, perhaps some of you who were around who were aware of the dialogues at the time. Oh, well, well, we can have public key encryption, but institutions and political parties need to maintain the keys and, you know, the people can have access to those keys through the third party. I mean, this is literally how they thought they were going to, like, mediate access to this technology. And, of course, nothing's changed. They want the same thing with Bitcoin. They want the same thing with 3D printed guns. They will never give it to you. You have to take it, all right? 
Like, you're not going to get there. You have to take it. And so Dark Wallet is a nightmare comeback. It's a paraphysical science fiction of imaginary solutions. The conversation at the time that the FBI beat us all over the head with and each other and riled themselves up with was the go-dark scenario. The go-dark scenario was, well, my God, if the people get access to public key encryption, all the available channels of intelligence will simply go dark. We can't allow this national security disaster to happen. X, Y, Z, you know what I mean? Like, whoever they're talking to. So... Give it back to them. What is Bitcoin at its most radical potentiality? It's a way of taking human action deep into the black market, beyond the kind of forensic investigative techniques of the, you know, the prevailing uh, system. I mean, that's its great hope if we are anarchists. And I, I know this is about adoption and getting businesses to use Bitcoin and kind of fit within the framework. There's a place for that. But there's not a place without a conversation with an agorist. Uh, an agorist state of mind, a tax resistor state of mind. You got to make them come after you in the end. All right, I'm not telling you to impale yourself and your family, but this is about going dark. This is about threatening the system with a with a nightmare which it predicted itself, saying that like yes, the the possibility of Bitcoin is that it will be uh, uninvestigatable. Uh, there will be a thousand Silk Roads and let them bloom. Um, that's what I'm working on right now. And my my advice is, when you see something falling like the prevailing financial superstructure. You don't, you don't rush in there to get some money and pop it back up. You push it over. There you have it, folks. I personally think that was some pretty powerful stuff. I hope you took away from it as much as I did. I think he makes a good point. If something is falling and something deserves to go by the wayside, you don't sit there and try to prop it up or try to get your little piece of the pie. You push it over. And that's what the ideas of Cody Wilson are doing. That's what the dark wallet hopes to do. That's what mixing services are doing. That's what anyone is doing who believes that Bitcoin does not need to be regulated and is going ahead and exchanging in goods and services or starting little agorist enterprises, trading on the black and gray market. That's what you're doing if you believe in freedom. You're pushing it over. And it doesn't take any bit of force. It doesn't take any fighting. We're going to read this piece from the Wall Street Journal blog. Uh, the reporter interviewed me, and he said, so what do you think about Cody Wilson saying we need to fight the system and fight the man? I said, he said nothing about fighting. There's, he didn't say anything about fighting or using any type of force or any outward attack on the state. It's much more just replacing it, ignoring it, doing something better, building the alternative institutions. And that's what sovereign living is all about. And that's what sovereign BTC is all about. We don't need to ask permission to set up this new system. We need to just do it. And I'm so excited that so many people are doing just that. They're not waiting along, waiting around for the regulations. We played it on a few podcasts ago an interview that Michael Cargill, Central Texas Gunworks, one of the sponsors here on the show, he did an interview with My Fox Austin, the local Fox affiliate, and he told them, like, government is still sorting this out. We're not going to wait a long, wait around for them to catch up. We're moving ahead. Technology is moving. We're moving too. Government's just going to have to catch up with us, and I think that's a really important message. So, again, we'll say it again. If something's falling, and especially if it's something that's corrupt, like the centralized coercive banking institution, don't help prop it up. Don't help revive it. Push the mother over. <laughs> that's, that's what I say. So I was inspired by Cody. He talked about the importance of inserting that message into the conversation, not allowing the conversation to be dominated by the likes of the Bitcoin Foundation. And I was very pleased and excited to see that the Wall Street Journal covered our Bitcoin conference. They covered Cody's speech. They covered Lynn Ulbrich. And they did so in a fashion that I think is very favorable to our position. Again, the idea that we need not rely on these centralized institutions in order to live our lives, solve our common problems, or in order to have a system of value exchange or a currency. We don't need the state. Uh, we'll be happy to leave the state in the dust. 
So here's the piece. You can find it on SovereignBTC.com. It's one of our lead stories. It starts Alt South by Southwest with the hashtag. Fired up about Bitcoin in a bookstore basement. Anyone who thinks the failure of the Bitcoin exchange Mt. Gox spells doom for the cryptocurrency should meet the pack of self-described anarchists that gathered in the basement of Brave New Books in Austin on Sunday. A few dozen people, many seemingly in their late 20s and early 30s, and some with young children in tow, came together for a full day of panel speeches and discussions celebrating Bitcoin and what its use means for their political beliefs. Some wore t-shirts showing cannon barrels, and they talked about politics and the shuttered online marketplace Silk Road. The mother of the site's alleged architect was in attendance. The headline speaker, Cody Wilson, subject of a Page One Wall Street Journal article who is known for unsettling lawmakers by making a plastic gun with a 3D printer and founding a startup aimed at covering the tracks of financial transactions made with Bitcoin. He described how Bitcoin takes human interaction, quote, deep into the black market. That is its great hope if we are anarchists, he said. The possibility of Bitcoin is that it is uninvestigatable, that there will be 1,000 silk roads and let them bloom. On Silk Road, people could buy everything from narcotics to forge passports and pay with bitcoins, affording buyers and sellers a greater degree of anonymity. The marketplace, which operated since 2011, was shut down last year. Lynn Ulbricht stood up briefly during Wilson's talk to thank those in attendance for supporting her son Ross, the alleged head of Silk Road. Ross, who was accused of using the online pseudonym Dread Pirate Roberts, pleaded not guilty in federal court in New York last month to money laundering, drug trafficking, and other charges. His parents relocated from Austin to New York to be closer to their son. He is innocent, Lynn said. The basement bookstore, just a few blocks from Texas State Capitol, doubles as headquarters for the state's Libertarian Party. On its shelves sit titles like Myth, Lies, and Oil Wars and Secrets of the Federal Reserve. On the wall hangs political art, one drawing depicting top U.S. economic officials as fascists. A rotating display features bumper stickers. Another American for gold guns and the Constitution, one reads. The day included an Oxford-style debate on the relative merits of Bitcoin versus other alternative currencies like Litecoin. One panel focused on women and Bitcoin. Two young mothers held their babies and argued passionately about how Bitcoin frees people from government influence. John Bush, who runs SovereignBTC.com, a Bitcoin consulting firm, organized Sunday's session. Bitcoin proves that we don't need government to exchange value with one another, he said, while holding his baby son, William. Libertarians are particularly distrustful of the Federal Reserve, which they argue unfairly manipulates the value of the dollar through monetary measures like quantitative easing. Bitcoin undermines the banks and the state, he said. Two attendees came with assault rifles slung over their shoulders. But in the fight against the government, Bitcoin is the weapon with more firepower, many argued. The Mt. Gox failure didn't appear to phase this group. Anarchists are excited about Bitcoin, said Bush, who uses it to pay some of his employees. Wilson, the headline speaker, described Bitcoin as anti-fragile, capturing the determination of those in the room. I don't think we break when Bitcoin is attacked by hackers, he said. I think we strengthen. So that's the article. Again, the headline is Fired Up About Bitcoin in a Bookstore Basement, and you can find it on SovereignBTC.com. I was really excited that they covered our work, and there was about 50 to 60 people that attended, and everyone came away really inspired and learned a lot. There's a lot of great networking that went on. We even took a second out of the event to pause and find anyone in the room that didn't yet have a Bitcoin wallet set up, and we ensured before anyone left that basement, that bookstore, Brave New Books, the first brick and mortar in the city of Austin to accept Bitcoin, that if they were going to leave, they were leaving with a Bitcoin wallet. So I think it was all in all a great success. And I appreciate the fact that 
Cody Wilson gave an awesome talk. It was rather compelling. He drew me in, and he made me realize, again, reaffirm the importance of inserting this message of the philosophy of freedom and liberty into the Bitcoin conversation, and I was so pleased when this Wall Street Journal article did just that. So I want to thank you for listening. This has been our seventh edition of Sovereign BTC, your guide to the practical side of everyday Bitcoin use. You can check us out at SovereignBTC.com. You can find the podcast at Let'sTalkBitcoin.com. Follow us on Twitter at Twitter.com slash SovBTC. And like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SovereignBTC. Until next time, remember, use Bitcoin, live free, and prosper.